Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Hill Harper, and you're listening to This Moment. Love is an infinite energy. It's about positive attitude, energy, loving other people, no judgment. Let's wrap each other in love and acceptance and and possibility. That doesn't mean we can't fight. Fight back and fight bigger forces that we know represent injustice, but that doesn't mean you can't love within that context. And you never know what the future holds. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this moment. In this week's episode, you'll hear a conversation that Marcus had a few weeks ago with author, actor, and extremely well-educated and eloquent voice, Hill Harper. It's a conversation that spans family, love, politics, adoption, and parenting in this very intense moment in our lives. Hill also had quite an unusual college roommate that he'll tell us a bit about. I hope you're going to like it. It's a special one, folks, so check it out. So right now we got a superstar, hopefully not our last superstar, but we got a superstar in the house. So in the building, we got Mr. Hill Harper. Thank you for coming on this moment, man. Oh, man, it's great to be on. Thank you so much. We're right now talking to Mr. Hill Harper. They got three Ivy League degrees. So if anyone knows about schools... It's got to be you. And uh, being an academic really runs through your family, your upbringing, too. Tell me a little bit from Iowa to Boston to Brown to Providence. Tell me a little bit about your journey in terms of academia and so on. You know, um, from the the day that I can remember, um, academics and learning was emphasized to me. You know, both of my parents are medical doctors, MDs. They met at Howard Medical School, so that's how they met. But but if you want to talk about real anomalies and just amazing people, uh, uh, first I'll speak about my mother, Dr. Marilyn Hill Harper. She is from a small town in South Carolina called okay. Seneca, which is about four or five miles from Clemson University. My grandfather was a pharmacist there. They called him Doc Hill. That's where I get my name from. Called him Doc Hill. He ran Piedmont Pharmacy. Never forget the way he answers the phone. Piedmont Pharmacy! You know, and that's, that was his voice. Can I, can I just hold you for that? So we're in the, if you think about his, when he's doing that, so that's in the 40s or something like that, right? Yeah, er, earlier, earlier. So, um, so let, let's put the context in. So this is during Jim Crow segregation yes. in the deep, deep, deep South. Okay. So 
Black people couldn't go to Rexall or Walgreens. There wasn't CVS or Rite Aid at the time. (laughs) They couldn't go to any of those. If you were Black, you had to go to Piedmont Pharmacy or a Black pharmacy. And it was an old school pharmacy where he wore his white pharmacist thing, much like a chef's Mm -hmm. outfit, right? And he would trade. He knew that a lot of Black folks didn't have money, a lot of money. And he wouldn't let that get in the way. He would serve the community. If you had chickens or potatoes, he'd trade that. It was about serving people who needed medication. My mother grew up in this small town. And if you were even thinking about, now this is contextually, if you were even thinking about going into medicine and you were a woman, even if you were a white privileged woman, you would become a nurse, most likely. You probably weren't thinking about becoming a doctor, let alone a doctor in the scientific side of the practice, which is anesthesia which is much more mathematical and it's about dosing and, and it's, you know, it's much more mathematical and scientific. So she, from a small town in, in Jim Crow South, goes to Talladega College in Alabama, historically, small historically black college in Alabama, and then goes to Howard University to become a doctor. Now, she is a trailblazer, becomes one of the first black female anesthesiologists in the country and, and meets my father who was from a small town in Iowa called Fort Madison, Iowa. Mm -hmm. And his father, my grandfather, Harry D. Harper, uh, the first, my dad was Harry D. Harper Jr. Uh, A lot of H's running our family, obviously. Um, He was a doctor in Fort Madison and became a doctor with his four brothers, went to Howard the, the, my great-grandfather was the head of the waterworks, so basically like a high-end plumber in yeah. Fort Madison, sent his kids off, to, off to, to, to graduate school, and they came back to be doctors. And so I was born in Iowa because my parents went back to Iowa after their, for their residency, their University of Iowa for their medical residency, leaving Howard after Howard. And I was born there. Eventually, my parents split up moved out to California, the Bay Area, and then Sacramento, et cetera. The simple fact is, is that education was a huge through line, but at the same time, it was about, there's nothing you can't do. So figure out what are you passionate about? And the beautiful thing that they taught me, and this is what I love, and this is the, I think the biggest mistake we make in talking to young people about education. And this is what I, with my foundation, the Manifest Your Destiny Foundation, we always reinforce to young people is that we say, go to school and learn and study so that you build a foundation educationally. So you have options. Mm. The mistake we make is we tell young people, study this so you can do that. That subconsciously or consciously begins to limit your options, right? Like, what if I don't want to do that? It's like, uh uh-uh. Study that just so you're a more learned human being. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you go to culinary school, you don't have to be a chef, but you're going to know how to cook. And it's going to inform your life because it's a skill set you develop. If you go, if you go study biology, you don't have to become a doctor or or, or a biologist, but it's going to inform you. And so, so I always contextualized education as making me a more learned human than making me feel pigeonholed into whatever I study I have to do because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that was a blessing that I was gifted for my family about education. And I think it helped me. And that's why I ended up with going to Brown and two graduates from Harvard 
um, even though I don't traditionally use those graduate degrees in any specific way. I mean, that's an that's an amazing lineage to come from. And I, I'm just thinking about um, envisioning your grandfather, how he answers the phone, and but he's also work ethic and choices. And maybe it's a stupid question, but I have to ask, because this is during segregation, part of it. Like, did your parents have white patients and black patients or only black patients? My grandparents only had black patients. Yeah. My parents had both. Had both. Wow. My parents had both, yeah. 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 Because, you know, once they started practicing, um, they, Jim Crow segregation uh, began to end. You know, 1954, May 17th, 1954, was the Brown v. Board of Education decision. Yeah. And then you fast forward to the Civil Rights Act of 63, 64, so it's, it's all this is happening within their career, but also they were in Iowa, which in theory didn't have Jim Crow. But then my mother went to take a professorship at UCSF, the University of California, San Francisco. So she moved there, um, which had, you know, a different, you know, obviously yeah. it was not segregated per se, but the systemic and institutional racism that we're, we, we're talking about right now with the Black Lives Matter movement completely ran through her career. She was hit with systemic and institutional racism and systemic and institutional sexism. She got the double whammy. Got double, the, yeah. Double within these institutions. And just give me just give me an example, because for people who don't, this are like real heavy meat. Like what are, what are some examples of systemic and institutional racism that we need to know about? I mean, it's it's it it runs through everything. I mean, mm-hmm. from from the the microaggression level of mm-hmm. not being paid uh, or compensated or mm-hmm. talked about or included in the meetings or getting that extra job or that extra bonus or being in the room where it happens, like Lin Manuel talks about in Hamilton. You know, here's the deal: um, all of these things begin to add up. Not getting that prestigious. Uh, you know, placement coming out of school because supposedly that, you know, that wasn't for you and not getting it. And so these things begin to add up. And if you don't get the quotes and you don't get this and then you're paid less and that extra bonus, you're not invited. I remember for me personally, I'll never forget it. Uh, On a a TV show that I was on for a very long time, there was a golf outing that all of the actors were invited to participate in for charity with these really high net worth folks that each one was paired up. And um, without even blinking an eye, the person who organized it, who was also a producer, said that I wasn't invited. The only cast member not invited because they they knew um, uh, my political... Oh, political and that the corporate execs who are writing big checks to be in the foursome, they wouldn't want to be in a foursome with someone who had my beliefs. Oh, wow. But, but they did take the advertisement check that kept it the one of the longest hits ever though. Right. So they were open for that check. Listen, (laughs) it hits you on so many different levels, including quotes and, and ultimately pay scales. You know, I just actually posted something um, 
that I had come across. Viola Davis and I, we did a show together years ago. It was a groundbreaking show called City of Angels, Mm -hmm. which was uh, Stephen Boschko, who had done NYPD Blue, um, you know, and Murder One, all these huge, huge shows, um, won Emmy after Emmy after Emmy after Emmy, decided that, that we should do a show about a bl- urban hospital run by black folks. So it was yeah. way, way ahead of his time. He did it with a wonderful d- director, producer named Paris Barkley, who had cut mm-hmm. his teeth doing a lot of like LL Cool J's, I'm gonna knock you out videos and all of that. Amazing, amazing cat. So we do this show. The cast was incredible. It was me, Viola Davis, Blair Underwood, um, uh, Vivica Fox, Gabrielle Union, um, wow. um, Michael Warren. Uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on some of you. I mean, it was, it was Pat, oh, Maya Rudolph, Maya Rudolph. Um, I was blanking. So incredible cast. And I just saw this, this interview that Viola had done talking about people are always, basically I'm paraphrasing here, but she said, people always call me and say, I'm on the, I'm the black Meryl Street. But in, in my credits are, and I've had the exact same path, whether it's NYU, Juilliard or Yale as Julianne Moore, Meryl Streep and all of these, but I don't get paid like Julianne Moore, Meryl yeah. Streep really, and I don't have the same opportunities as Julianne Moore. And so the point is, is that we understand the systemic and institutional nature of how folks get held back. Um, and we all have to know our worth and we all, but, but more important than us knowing our worth, the folks who are making decisions and writing the checks have to know our worth. And in mm-hmm. that, and I'll, this is the last thing I'll, I'll say about this, is that that also speaks to charity and what I call charity is because I end up on all these calls with these big donating organizations and they want to know what they can do and what they do and what they don't even look in the mirror and realize that, that Black folks don't need charity. We don't mm-hmm. even want charity. What we need yeah. is you to invest in us. Yeah. And all of a sudden, when you start talking about investment, they start talking about, whoa, 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 hold on. So you mean I, I'm supposed to write a check and invest in you and you're still going to own the majority? Yes, that's yes. what investing is. That's what you do to these young cats coming out of Stanford that are wearing hoodies. Yeah. You don't own a majority of their company, but you, you'll write a big check and invest in mm-hmm. it. But instead with us, you either want to own it or, or wrap us into your brand and make us a, a button within the brand or it's going to be charity and you're going to make us write some type of grant proposal where you actually control the spend. And what, and really defining the difference and understanding systemic racism within charity and investment, rather than saying, yo, the best way to impact these communities is to invest in a young, a lot of young black brothers and sisters and let them create their own institutions that actually start to create jobs, et cetera. Because I guarantee you, if you give money to a young brother entrepreneur in an incubator in Detroit, he's not yeah. going to move his company to Silicon Valley. He's going to create jobs in Detroit. Um, but instead, you want him to actually come to work for you as an apprentice first, or come on, man, I'll give you a job. I'm not really going to invest in you. I have to ask you a question about Brown. Brown has always been a relatively activist school. Mm-hmm. And it, at least since I came there, because um, there was a guy named Ira Magaziner who led a protest, a protest around creating a new curriculum. And mm-hmm. one thing I loved about going to Brown was the new curriculum. 
Sure. You could take every class pass fail. There were no set uh, required classes that you had to take as general studies. You could just Mm -hmm. take what you're passionate about from the first semester freshman year, which to me opened up the entire course catalog. And and I believe that's partly the reason I became an actor because my first semester freshman year, I took an acting class, Theater Arts 21, Voice for the Actor, Shakespeare, taught by Professor Barbara Tannenbaum. And, and I took it because I could take that class. Any other school, I would have been doing my general ed requirements, yeah. and I wouldn't have been able to take that class probably to my junior year. And by my junior year, I may not have even been interested. But I was like, whoa, this class meets at a time I need it. I've always been interested in acting. I had done some stuff earlier, and I've loved Shakespeare. Let's check it out. So, um, and that class changed my life. And that was in Boston Theater? That was in Brown my freshman year. I took that class and then I kept taking acting classes. And then I joined a repertory company in Boston called the Black Folks Theater Company in Boston. So all of those things built upon the next. It's like, certainly when we think about journey in life, Mm -hmm. it's not zero sum choices. Each choice actually impacts the next because the next choice opens up or offers us doors to walk through because, but for that choice before, there's that line in that George Michael song I love where he says, turn a different corner and we never would have met. That's what life is. Yeah. Make a different choice and you're not open to that next option. You know, when you tasted that that girl you were dating's gumbo and she's like, ooh, food impacts you like this and I can get girls if I cook really well. You're like, ooh, I'm going to get good. So maybe it was motivated by trying to impress girls, but all of a sudden it's like, I got a career. Absolutely. So, so talk to me because one of the things that is amazing. So then you go from Brown and then you go to Harvard and you get two degrees. And and why why isn't Hill Harper the lawyer known? Or I mean, there's so many other ways that you could have gone with the, all this, right? And so the acting bug got bigger and bigger, and you could you were never able really to push that away. That 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 creative side really talked to you, right? Yeah, and and it was. I'd won a a fellowship called the Alfred P. Sloan Fellowship where, you know, actually in the news now is is the renaming of of what they call Woody Woo, which is the Woodrow Wilson School of of Public Policy at Princeton. I went there as part of my Sloan Fellowship and they called Mm -hmm. it Woody Woo. And, you know, I'm happy they're changing the name. So I went, my Sloan Fellowship allowed me to study public policy. So I decided to do a joint degree at the Harvard Law School and the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard to get a JD MPA, which is a master's in public administration. And I really enjoyed it, but I also kept doing my theater at the Black Folks Theater Company of Boston. And I would, during grad school, I'd go down to New York and do a lot of theater. I'd do auditions. Um, I would do different types of performance. And, and it really started, I started to realize that that's where my heart was being led. And I wasn't thinking about you know, what should I do? You know, at the time, my whole thing is, and this is what I say to anybody, no matter what age, but particularly if you're on the younger side of your journey, you've got to follow your heart. You know, mm-hmm. courage is one of my favorite words in the English language. And if you speak French or if you know the etymology of the root of that word is core, which means mm-hmm. heart. It, you know, courage isn't the antithesis of fear. Courage is actually just getting into your heart and then following it with your energy and your actions and your choices. And so if you're able to do that, 
um, that's where I was. And if I was actually thinking about it, da, 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 you know, am I going to build this or build that? Mm-hmm. It would be, it, it would be perhaps different sets of choices, but I'm, I'm glad I was able to stay in my heart. And I'm glad that I had people in my life that didn't try to project their fears upon me for making yeah. these alternative career choices. And, and many people said to me, they said, yo, it, you know, you got all these, you got all these student loans. You just went to Brown and you went to Harvard. You got all this student loan debt. Man, take one of these high-paying law jobs and then pay off your student loans and then do what you want to do. Just think about th- those types of words coming out of someone's mouth and how that somehow makes sense to them. That makes zero sense. It's ridiculous. It's just like when I tell you that 60, there's a 65% dropout rate of young black males in Baltimore City public school system. It sh- I, those words shouldn't even be able to come out of my mouth yeah. without somebody saying, what? That doesn't yeah. make sense. Don't wait to do what you want. Do what you want now. Take risk. Double down. Follow your heart. Go for it. And, yeah. and people talk themselves out of that all the time. Now, people say to me now, like, yo, if you wouldn't have done that, man, you could have been Barack Obama. You could have been president by now. You could have done this and that and say, you know what, man, that's the journey that you're projecting yeah. because, yeah, he and I had the very same similar journey educationally. You know, I'm probably, I probably give better speeches than he does. You know, I'm just saying. <laughs> so, yeah, sure, I could have done that, you know. <laughs> I organized this basketball game during school at a at a maximum security prison called Walpole State Penitentiary. Mm-hmm. And I called Barack up and I was like, yo, we got to go play this basketball game. He's like, where? I was like, we're going to go to Walpole State Penitentiary. He's like, what? I was like, yeah. You know, his brother reached out to me and he said, how come you all Harvard, you know, yeah. N-words don't, don't come out? And, 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 and really support the brothers in prison. You know, you sit up there at Harvard and da da da. And I was like, well, what do you like to do? He's like, I like to play basketball. I was like, well, I like to play basketball. So yeah. I was like, I want to play basketball. So I right. called the warden up and he was like, you don't want to do what? I was like, can we come and play basketball with, with the fellas and do a game? And he was like, mm, I guess no one's ever, whatever. You know, so, so it was me, Barack, and a couple other brothers. I rent this van. We roll out to Walpole. We have this, the whole prison stop and line the court. So he's in Columbia and you're in Harvard or you're both in Harvard? Is- both at Harvard Law School. Yep, yep. Both at Harvard Law Because we were the same class there, but I stayed an extra year because I was doing a joint degree. And that's the funny thing. I got the degree in government. He doesn't have a degree in government. <laughs> I got it. You know also who don't have a degree in government? Donald Trump. I know, he Duh. does. He definitely doesn't. That guy. That guy. <laughs> so we go out and play this game, and, and he tells a funny piece to the story, which I think is a little urban myth, but he says, yeah, you know, I was guarding my dude, and, you know, we were doing well. And he, he, he said, I asked my dude what he was in for. He said, double murder, and I stopped shooting, you know. <laughs> and so the whole prison was betting on who was going to win. It was a really incredible thing. And then to fast forward years later, for him to be the first sitting president to visit a prison, um, and you could see a through line because he had already been to a prison. You know, that time we played that basketball game was the first time he had been inside a prison. It, was, it wasn't the first time I'd been inside because my dad, when I was, my dad used to do, um, used to do a lot of work in a, in a maximum security prison because my dad was a psychiatrist. So he did a lot of work with offenders. 
So when I was young, I'd been inside a prison, but, but as, as a, as my, on my own, you know, it was the first time I'd been in a prison. And, um, and what was crazy is though, is that the brothers we were playing with were basically our age. Yeah. And they were facing 15 to life, 25, 40. And given what people should understand is you turn a different corner or change one scenario or change one interaction with the law and any of us could have traded places another place and that's what it's like being a black man in this country yeah you could become president of the united states Mm -hmm. or you could be be in walpole state penitentiary and the 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 incremental difference is just a few situational choices, decisions, and interactions with law enforcement and interactions in your life and encouragement and people in your life. I, I've been to Rikers a couple of times and when you, I'm there, it's hard. Like it's like going through everything and it's mostly brothers and being black. It, I think about that stuff all the time, right? It, it's I'm here talking and I could, it's so easy to be on, on the other side. And I think as a, as a black man, you think about this all the time, even to the point where you talk about in the early nineties, when the loss, that was actually the time where, where people could get in for a bag of weed and sit 30, 40 years because it was a second or the third crime and they're not coming back out. So we are now slowly starting to like change those laws. But so many of the, of the brothers are in for 30, 40 years were actually, in, it could be two speeding tickets and the third one could be, you know, two bags of weed or something like that. And you're in for a long time. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You know, when I started cooking and I got my internships, I felt like the richest dude in the world. You know, they were in France or they were in Japan. You know, that I never got paid, but I got the opportunity, right? Like paid, I could figure out that on the side later on, but I was just as happy as I am now with, with, with completely different situations. So I say that because during this moment when everything almost as we think is normal is taken away from you, I've drawn on those experiences, right? I've drawn on being an immigrant. I've drawn on being a black man where we're constantly being pushed and pulled. And in a weird way, it might even be an opportunity to be an asset to be an immigrant or an asset to be a black man because we always have to push a little bit harder and that's what's going to come out of this. And, you know, we're all going to draw on this experience very differently, but that has helped me. Um, you know, the other thing about the gun, I've been held, I was robbed once in Hell's Kitchen, didn't didn't even think of the moment, but ran after the guy so I could get my green card back. Like he took my wallet and everything. I said, dude, take my money. I don't care about that. Just give me my green card back. And I was held to gunpoint at, at one point in, in Dallas. I know he was in Dallas, in Texas, but in, outside Dallas. And this was a crazy situation. I was cooking and we were cooking outside and this little boy, four-year-old like our kids now, ran over to see what we were doing because it was so exciting. It was fire coming up. And this little white kid, and all of a sudden, his father comes over and say, let go of my boy. And we were just showing this kid that we were cooking and he was so excited. And he thought he didn't want his boy to be over cooking with the black kids, black guys. So the boy, I have to like take the boy down from the grill. He was literally on the grill, flipping burgers with us, take him down, pass him over to his father. And and it, it, it's, it's one of those moments you don't think. And I, I wasn't even scared, but I was just froze up. So it's interesting the way you say that, that I don't think I've thought about it in that way. So that was a very interesting way. Fear is something that you project into the future, right? Yes, That's what exactly. It's, 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 it's that projection That of we're in our head, like, what if this doesn't happen, or what if this does happen? It, it's it's both. It's like it's either mm. you're afraid that something's not going to manifest, or you, you're afraid that something negative could manifest. And but it has nothing to do with the present. And so, wow. the more we let that go, that projection, and stay present, because the the real stuff to be scared of that life and death stuff when you're in that moment you're not even afraid it's it's a it's a different reaction your brain is trying to solve the problem right and it's like and you're actually angry you know i had an angry discussion with this dude when he had his he's called me all this in yeah. i'm like i was so angry like 
who the F do you think you are to make you feel that you can even put a gun in my face? I was like, you know, it was, oh, so yeah. uh, angry. And, and he and I had this very angry discussion sure. about it. And, and then, you know, afterwards, you're going to look back and be like, you know, well, yeah. but, you know, I, it's interesting <laughs> that as two black men, who have careers and have done quite well in the careers they've chosen. We both have stories of white men pulling guns on us. That's, that's wow. You know what I'm saying? And so just, you know, multiply that. And I'm not saying that happens to everyone, Mm -hmm. but there are also metaphorical guns that white folks pull on us. It's not just our physical gun. It's Mm -hmm. metaphorical guns. And in situational guns and institutional guns. And um, and it's something that we have to understand. And it's all the more reason to support each other. You know, um, one thing that's come out of this experience for me, when you talk about this from COVID into the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the conflation of both is just the vulnerability piece. Mm-hmm. I just, it's made me so much more vulnerable and wanting to be more vulnerable, wanting to be more open. No one wants to hear talking points anymore. No one wants to hear the politically correct thing to say. People just want truth. Yeah. And what's your truth and, and what is it? And, 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 and it's gotten me more towards to that place, which I really appreciate because the one thing Hollywood ain't is truthful. Yeah. And so you can start to get sucked into that world. And, um, you know, and, you know, I, it's like, you know, I, I don't know what the cooking world's like, you know, mm-hmm. where people walking, sure. hey, chef, you know, and all that. I've, I've seen it on TV. And so I, I you know, I'll, I'll watch my cooking show every once in a while yeah. I think it's to see, to see what's happening in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but at the end of the day, let's be vulnerable. Let's yeah. be truthful and let's find solutions and let's support each other. It's like you telling me that story makes me want to just support you. Yeah. 10,000. Like, yo, if he calls me up, I'm saying yes, because I got his back because I know what's happened to him. And I know he deserves someone to have his back because that's not right. What happened? And I want to see you shine so that maybe someday that young kid recognizes you and sees you and says, Hey, that's the guy that was trying to teach me how to barbecue or flip burgers. Yeah. And I appreciate him and I love him and I can think about race differently than my father did. So that was 10 years ago and maybe he was a peer stage or science age. And I was like, I want to go down and meet this kid. I, I thought about him, you know, trauma messes with you, like right, in a weird way. Like, I can be in a car in the middle of something and I can think about that kid and I can think about the eyes of his father. And maybe for them, for the father it was just a moment pulling guns and some lactose. He's done, definitely done that before. For me, it's been with me so many, many times, you know. And one day I would love to just sit down and have dinner with that family. Uh, where are you know, in LA, Detroit, where are you? Actually in Seattle, of all places. Um, you know, I was in New York and then New York started to get real hot and went up to Detroit where I have, uh, I have a home and a business and, and, a, and a nonprofit. And Detroit got hot. So I was like, dang, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living in all the hot spots. 
And and then uh, um, I shoot my TV show, The Good Doctor. We shoot it in the Pacific Northwest. We shoot it actually shoot it in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was com- last season and before I've been commuting from New York to Vancouver to shoot, and, and then that's that's not possible anymore with the flight situation and and, and as we know, all sorts of of exposure things. And so um, had to base out closer to Vancouver. So right now, basing in Seattle, dry, you know, and, and when we start shooting again, I'll be driving up to Vancouver uh, to shoot. And very fortunate to be able to get my son, who was in pre-K, into a school here. And, and uh, the school's open. And, we're, nice. and we're, we're making our way. We're making our way. And how old is Pearson right now? Is he five? Pierce Hill Harper's four years old, going yeah. on 40, 44. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm not talking about the 44 present. I'm just talking about 44 years of age. And, and yeah. he, is, he is something, um, you know, certainly the most important thing in my life and, and, the, and the most important thing I've ever, ever done. And, and uh, he, he has taught me so much about what it is to be a man, to be a father. Mm-hmm to be a black man, to be a black father, raising a black boy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's been, it's a journey and we're mm-hmm. on it. We're in it together and we're going to get through this moment and onto other moments together. So, uh, yes. so yeah. Beautiful. And is he, I mean, my son just finished school and it was a rocky year, right? Cause it was super exciting, small school, great kids, great friends. And then all of a sudden, everything was kind of taken away. He was watching his friends on Zoom, but he wanted to see his friends. Uh, how did Pierce deal with, was it Zoom classes, non-Zoom classes? What, what's been going on? Yeah, so, you know, first of all, when children are young, three years old, four years old, five years old, see, I believe this social emotional development is all about socialization and learn by doing, and you learn by interacting with other kids. And so being at home with adults trying to do Zoom is not it. It's not I don't think it's good for their socialization. I don't think it's good for them being able to interact. We, we, it, it's, it, it's, I really wanted him to be around more kids and he couldn't really understand why he couldn't be around other kids. He couldn't understand why he couldn't go to a playground, interact with other kids, or even when they were around, Hey, stay back, you know, this type of thing. And so was, he was going to the United Nations school because I really believe in, sure. in exposure to multiple cultures, characters. There's 116 native languages spoken in that school. This is in New York City. Yeah. And so when they transitioned to Zoom, you know, it was great for him to be able to have a through line and not just have kids that were important to him just disappear. But the, the contextual nature of relating uh, was, was, is not, was not there. And so um, I really think it's important to have our kids interacting with each other, you know, and he doesn't have any siblings. And so at least kids that have siblings, they have other kids to bounce off of and, and interact with and negotiate with and learn how to problem solve and learn how to make the peace and, and all of those things that I think are really important to developing your social and emotional behavior and characteristics and, and just your personality. So this is a tough time, man. It's a yeah. tough time for kids. It's a tough time for, for the parents as well. And, and so trying to do that home schooling and all of that stuff is, is difficult. So um, I feel for everybody out there that has kids, particularly the young kids um, that, that are going through this. And so, you know, let's, lo- let's use as many tools as possible 
You know, I know some of the kids that are just a little bit older. My son are doing a lot of Minecraft and, yeah. and, and spending time relating that way, which I think is great. And, and I'm not, I believe technology is, is a good thing if used properly. So I'm not this anti-tech person, but I think that actual physical human touch communication with sure. folks that are your size actually is good, really good. So yeah. hopefully we can get to that place where we're back doing that. Nice. And, you know, think about how many communities he's going to belong to, right? Like, you know, going to school with United Nations kids. So that's going to be, you know, he's exposed to immigrant kids and Americans, of course, but everybody being connecting to two coasts, you know, that's going to be, and even with Detroit connection, it's going to be, he's going to belong to many communities. And also I got to give a shout out to the adopted community, because that's something that you, when you're, when you're a kid, it's always something you talk about or back and forth. But then eventually when you get older, it's a whole tribe. People come up to me still to this day and say, I'm adopted and I know you're adopted. And it becomes this club that people can come from a completely different ethnicity. You can be on a train, you can be on a, uh, on a flight. And they're like, they know maybe through my journey. And they said, I was also adopted. And you create this kinship with somebody that you might not ever ever would have spoken to. And it's given me a lot of strengths actually to be part of all this, you know, being an immigrant, being a black man, being a Swede, being Ethiopian, but also being adopted, being American, of course, you know, has all these different aspects. Yes. And when I think about it, you know, even there's it's it's really interesting and it's a it's a it's a struggle, but it's also the, the conversation because mm-hmm. he sees because it's a, he's even it's a little a little different, and I didn't know this data. Someone told it to me that it's like 002 percent of the adopt adopted kids are adopted by single fathers. You know, like I, I didn't know that. Yeah, like it's just, it's a minuscule percentage. Wow. And so the the conversation he and I have, or he has with me, obviously, he sees so many mommies. He mm. sees moms all the time, and he's wondering how come he doesn't. Have Where's his mom? Mm, mm. You know, who is his mom? So we've had to have conversations about his birth mom and yeah. and um and it's you know, I mean, I certainly don't have any answers and I'm not a child psychologist and I don't know how that just my feeling is just to to love on him as much as yeah. possible and to tell the truth. I mean, mm. you know, if you have any advice to me as in a and as an adopting parent. Uh, uh, please tell me because um, I just I just want him to feel good about who he is. Feel feel that just because a mom doesn't come and pick him up at school all the time and it's and it's a dad, um, and when mom Mother's Day comes, there's not necessarily a mom there to give a Mother's Day card. And when they're doing stuff at school and making Mother's Day cards, and every time I read a book that it says mom, 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 mom said this, mom said that. You know, I'd never noticed how much you know, moms, and rightfully so. I'm not trying to take Mm -hmm. away from any moms. No, no, I get it. But mom is, it's like when we talk, you know, I'm sure we're going to get into talking about systemic stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, moms are weaved through so much and he's looking at me like, yo, I hear and see moms in in the books. I hear and see moms at school. I hear and see moms here. But what, so where's mine? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. listen, you know, uh, listen, if I get married, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. yeah, but it does create also closing. You know, with my parents being white, 
they didn't have a crash course on how to raise a black baby, but they did know how to love, right? And so I always felt that people always ask me, how was it to grow up in a white family? And I was like, that is actually not the first way of my family was. My first family was, I knew I could, my mom and dad was always behind me, next to me or in front of me, whatever I needed in that situation, right? So I was loved and I felt protected in that love. Then as life gets complicated, when you become a teenager and you have more sort of identity questions, but we could talk about it. We talked about everything. Even to my into my 20s, when I was supposed to meet, my, when I met my birth father, I checked with my mother first because I said to my, my sister, I don't want to do this to my mom. And my mom's like, are you crazy? If you can meet your birth father, I'm coming with you. So my mom came with me. And this was something that I sat on as an adult, as a young adult at 21, 22, because I didn't want it for her to ever think that she hadn't done a good job. And my mom's like, you know, this is an amazing journey for you. So she came and the last 10 years, she knew my, got to know my Ethiopian father uh, and, you know, it worked for us, but it's very different. But it created, it created, we're very, we were a very close family. And I think the adoption had a lot to do with that. Uh, you know, it's also the only upbringing I, I ever gonna have and the only upbringing I had. So it was my normal and it's gonna be, your, his normal is between you and him and it's your world. And listen, and to your point, you know, love is an infinite energy and it really is. And I, I like to think of love as energy. And, and, mm. and so what I try to pour out and pour in, and even mm. in my own life, like it's about positive attitude, energy, loving other people, uh, no judgment. Let's, let, let's wrap each other in love and acceptance and, and possibility. Um, that doesn't mean we can't fight and fight back and, 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 and fight bigger forces that we know represent sure. injustice, but that doesn't mean you can't love within that context. And so um, I just try to wrap him in as much love as possible. Um, and I hope he feels it, you know, and, and uh, it's, yeah. you know, and you never know what the future holds. You know, I tell him, you know, I, you, yo, I could get married next week and you got a mama right there, you know. You know? <laughs> Why do you think this spring is, because we've had it before, we've had, you know, the George Floyd video, maybe not at 8.46, but we've had other horrible things broadcasted to it. Why do you think this spring it popped off? Because we, we all weren't distracted. There are so many things that are in place, I believe in many ways to distract the masses such that, and then to keep us, you know, arguing amongst ourselves, all these things, while, while very wealthy systems do big money grabs. And the big money grabs continue. I mean, this latest 2.4 trillion is the, I think it's the biggest money grab in history that I've ever seen. Certainly, you, you, you know, when, 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 number, uh, when number 44 took office uh, to save the economy, there was this thing called TARP, which, you know, all these banks were failing and that was $700 million and people made a big brouhaha about it. But within a, within a matter of seconds, within the context of COVID, they did a 2.4 trillion money grab. And even if you multiply, what, 100, 
hundred million people got twelve twelve thousand dollar checks or whatever that amount is. Mm-hmm. Where's the other two point two trillion dollars go? Where'd it go? I mean, I really under, I I have no idea where yeah. that cash went because it certainly didn't go to the people. Yeah. And so so uh, during any other time, all these institutions have been created, whether it's the NBA, NFL, so mm-hmm. sports, cooking shows, TV, thousand channels, Netflix you know, my business, the entertainment business, you know, all of these things are created to, to distract folks from mm. the folks doing the big money grab. And in this case, everyone wasn't distracted because there's none of that going on. You couldn't be go out to restaurants. Yeah. You yeah. couldn't be out at dinner. You couldn't be watching the new sports show. Cause so, so people had to focus mm-hmm. on eight minutes and 46 seconds of a guy's knee on a brother's neck saying, he's going to kill me. I can't breathe, calling for his mama. And you can't look, you couldn't look away because yeah. there wasn't other things to distract you. Mm-hmm. And it captivated people's attention. Yeah. And I think similar to the civil rights movement, when they made the proactive choice to allow children and women and students to be fire hosed and attacked by dogs. And that back then there were only three networks and mm-hmm. sports weren't really broadcast live like that. So the nation saw it and really was like, yo, that's, that's really not acceptable. We got to do something. And this, this, you know, whether you want to call it the third reconstruction or the, the next civil rights movement, we're in that moment. The question is, as things start to open back up, given social media and all the other distractions that have been created, are we going to be able to maintain the will and the activism to actually create sustainable change? Mm-hmm. And that's the question, but that's on us, man. That's mm-hmm. on you and I and everybody else Wow. Uh, to keep our foot on the accelerator, to be bold and to insist that this does not get swept under the rug. That's why I really respect Kyrie Irving taking a stand saying, yo, bringing back the NBA is just another distraction. Mm. We don't need to do that. It's going to be kind of false tournament anyway, right? Because it's it's this little tournament, you know, basically. Why do we have to participate in that? Why don't we just start the season next season and play a regular season? But right now, let's keep focused on this. It's It's a wonderful stand to take. It's a very strong stand. And, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I'll tell you, I have a lot of respect for that. How did you grow up within, obviously, extremely bright parents, hardworking parents, but how was the movement discussed in the house? Certainly, the civil rights movement and discussions around equality, equity, mm-hmm justice, social justice. We had those in our household. My grandfather, my father's side was the president of the state of Iowa NAACP. And I, one of, one of the most proud things I remember is that my dad gave me this plaque when I was young. In fact, I have to get one for Pierce. So I'm actually glad we're saying this where it said lifetime member of the NAACP. And it was hung in my bedroom. And I always felt that was something like, yo, I'm, I'm a mm-hmm. lifetime member. I didn't realize that when I became an adult, I had to write another check to be a lifetime adult member. I was just a lifetime child member, but you know, that's okay. Cause the NAACP needs to get the money and I understand that. 
So I wrote my check for that too. And I hope anybody who's listening, whether you're black or white, you can join the NAACP. Let's be very clear. And isn't it great if you're a white person listening to this, or if you're a foreign born person listening to this, Mm -hmm. or whoever, buy a membership of the NAACP. Let Mm -hmm. them send you that card. Be a card carrying member of the NAACP. Support Mm -hmm. them. They do great work and they're doing good work. So, um, I remember that. So certainly those discussions were had and it was a, a, a part of growing up. Absolutely. I asked that because at what point do you talk about this moment with Pierce? At what point do you talk about the talk and race and justice and police? When when does that, he's four, you want to protect him from everything. But when do you do I don't When's know. the right time? I, and I really don't. And any parents out there who have a really good insight on this, please DM me on my Instagram. It's at Hillhart because I need help. You know, you can't protect them from everything because they see, they see signs and say, what does that say? Or Black Lives Matter, what is that? Or they hear something or they see something. And so he's definitely been exposed to it. And, and I've, you know, talked to him. I say, no, you know, I say, you can say no justice, no peace. He was even saying this morning. He was saying no justice, no peace this morning. Yes. But I don't know if he even knows what that means, but he was saying it, right? And so the the thing is, is though, I have a book about Dr. King as an example. And it was like a little Dr. King. And, and I was, as I was reading the book to him, I stopped myself because it was talking about, oh, little Dr. King grew, grew up and then he went to play. He played with the white kids and then he went and the white parents said he couldn't play with a black child. And I stopped myself and I said, like, I don't want to read that to him. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of already indoctrinating the idea of, of different treatment or less than treatment already. I'd rather him understand and celebrate Dr. King, but I don't want him at this early age thinking about his brown skin as, as different or not worth playing. And but, but, but I even have reflexes, reflexive things that happen that I try not to project. In fact, I was at the playground the other day and he was riding his bike and there were, you know, obviously it's other white kids around his age that certainly their families, I don't know them, but we're all just there together. And it's kind of like a skate bike park. So you're, the kids are riding around and one kid says, hey, let's play cops and robbers. And I'm going to be the police and you're the robber. And, and I literally, I almost... I almost stepped in. I was like, no, 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 no. But then I realized I would be projecting a lot my my stuff on that, right? And and I would have been bringing all this, you know, police this. And so I had to stop myself and say, this kid is about my son's age, a little bit older. He's really not thinking. Mm. I don't believe in race terms deciding he's the cop and he's the robber and all of the things that I'm projecting on it. So I stopped myself. I saw his parent look to me saying, oh, dang. And I could see the look in her eyes saying, oh, this, this is not, this ain't good. This is not, this could go all sorts of way wrong. And I decided, go on yeah. play. Yeah. And, then, and then after yeah. a while, I said, yo, now you're the cop, he's the rob, you know, whatever. But I didn't even want my son being the cop, you know, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even though I played a cop on CSI New York, yeah. there's so many really good police officers. Uh, I just, the idea of reinforcing this idea of cops and robbers and all of this, it's just like the idea of playing uh, cowboys and Indians. Mm-hmm. I don't love that idea. 
you know, um, I don't love the idea of what that game represents, even though it's an innocent game. So yeah. I have, it's, 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 I'm finding my way in all of this and I'm mm-hmm. trying to figure it out how much exposure, what I talked about, I don't want to lay on too much, but at the same time, I don't want to act like it doesn't exist. And so I'm, mm. I'm, I'm feeling it as I go. Wow. Well, I want to say to you, thank you, my friend. You really, you gave me so many different things to think about. And I can't ha- uh, tell thank you enough. I really appreciate you coming on this moment and we'll do it soon again. Thank you, my brother. Peace. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. We'll be back again soon with more deep dives into life in this moment from Stockholm to Harlem. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.